Welcome to our wonderful weekend's audience. Happy May Day. Obviously, you're watching Weekends with Anna Kasperi and Nando Vila. And Nando, this is going to be one of my favorite shows. I can already feel it. You feel it. You're feeling good. I feel it. Mm-hmm. I am. I love everything that we have planned for the show today. Later, Megan Day is going to come on to briefly discuss one of the pieces she, that she published today in regard to May Day. We're going to have Professor Richard Wolf. I mean, heavy hitter on the show. Really love excited. Wolf. Always get Everyone excited when Wolf. Wolf's on the show. Everyone loves him. He's such a hit every time. The audience, they, they, they can't get enough of Wolf. And I don't blame them. I- Yeah, I mean, Destiny might not be watching, but that's okay. (laughs) Wolf is fantastic, and he's going to help us um, talk about the history of May Day. I mean, it's certainly been co-opted for very obvious reasons by those who don't want to talk about the fact that it's International Workers' Day. Um, But don't worry, we're going to talk about that. And we're going to, of course, jump into foreign policy with Nando's Decode segment on Guatemala and Kamala Harris's recent speech there. I can't wait. (laughs) It's going to be so good. Yeah, it was a good one. (laughs) It really was. uh, Or it's going to be. I mean, I read it already, but you guys are going to see it. It's going to be great. And um, I'm going to talk about James Carville and his recent statements about how the Democratic Party has a problem with woke culture. Unfortunately, his analysis is a little shallow. Um, So I'm going to offer a better analysis on that and why it is the Democratic Party has reduced itself to what it is. Um, But before we get to all of that, Nando, for banter today, I felt that it would be important to just open the show with a discussion about May Day. And I came across this fun video. It's a little long, um, but I wanted to, like, start with this and then open up a discussion. Let's take a look. And somehow was Labor Day day before Labor Day, and I said, by God, the trade union, when these kids said, we hate trade unions, we hate, we hate unions, they're terrible, they're no good, they're gangsters, and I say, how many hours a day do you work to this couple? And they said, we work eight hours a day. Why don't you work 16 hours a day? 16, yeah, because your great-grandparents work 16 hours a day. You know why you're working eight hours a day? Because four guys in Chicago got hanged. For you, in 1886, the Haymarket case, very famous, not in rural history books, they were campaigning, old German anarchists and others campaigned for the eight-hour day, and there was a big gathering, and someone threw a bomb, no one knows who, a couple of cops were killed and people, and the people who were speaking there, and long ago gone, were convicted of conspiracy, and of the eight people convicted, four were hanged. You know what they were fighting for? The eight-hour day. So these four guys were hanged for you. And you're talking about condemning unions. Five score and ten years ago, here on this very spot, history was made. And we are here 110 years later to revive that memory, to keep it fresh. From this platform, or one close to it, ardent advocates of a revolutionary idea put it forth. It was called the Eight-Hour Day. There was a song at the time, long disremembered, a popular song called Eight Hours for Work, Eight Hours for Play, Eight Hours for Sleep in Free America. And so this is a way of paying you all tribute, you and your fathers and mothers and all you represent, 
for this battle to keep history alive. And it is a delight to be here and an honor. And let's keep battling. I just love Gotta that love video. Studs. I love that guy. Studs Turkle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The man. Incredible. Incredible. And like, it's the story that is, I think, for the most part in, you know, mainstream media, of course, ignored. You know, you hear about May Day, but it's attached to different movements, pretty much anything other than the labor movement. Yeah. I mean, even like at the height of the Cold War, I feel like it was almost uh, branded as Soviet Independence Day or or something like that, or like the Soviet National Holiday. And it's it's funny because it, it, it did originate... Um, out of like as Studs mentioned, out of the, the Haymarket affair in in Chicago, um, so it does have an American root. And then you know here in America, we we don't really celebrate May Day as an official holiday. We have this thing called Labor Day, which is just in a different like we just we're like you know we can't we can't do it on the same day as everyone else. We have to do it on our own day. Um, and it's just it's 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 really crazy. Um, it's just it, it is one of the more pronounced instances of propaganda i think that i can think of that this american day which should be should make all of us proud that it was that that it inspired uh international workers day um it has been erased in the very country in which it originated while it is celebrated um across the world like i know that it's very common for uh labor unions to go on strike uh, on on may day uh around the world, even if it's just kind of like a, a one day symbolic thing. Um, it, it's, it's, it, it, and here in the United States, like all of that has been just totally erased. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to see. Right. It's fascinating, but also um, understandable when you understand like the, the forces at play and how powerful the message is when you, when you look at the fight that got us the eight hour workday. I mean, this was a fight that took decades to win. And the only way that it was won was through organizing, through strikes. And the strikes, you know, usually ended up with uh, bloody interactions with the police. I mean, all of these things um, help to kind of inform how powerful people can be if they work together in numbers, how they could actually challenge the working conditions that they're experiencing right now. And when you look at the parallels of where the United States was then, I mean, it's incredible. There's so many similarities when it, I mean, especially when it comes to something that we talk about almost every day in the news right now, which is police violence and police brutality. You know, it's certainly framed in the context of race, but of course there's a giant socioeconomic uh, component to that. And at the end of the day, the main purpose of policing in America is to protect capital. Uh, we saw yeah. it at Occupy Wall Street and, and we're seeing it today. And unless we address that, um, I think we're going to continue uh, dealing with the same problems. Yeah, no, it's it's it is kind of it, it is interesting to look back on that period. I mean, uh, Matt Carp wrote his big piece about the how we were living in through a second gilded age, not just because of the um, the presence of extreme inequality, which was very reminiscent is very reminiscent of what the gilded age was, but just the nature of the politics then. But also, you're starting to see the seeds of possibly a labor revival in the United States, like. The, the the whisperings the the rumblings there's something amiss um something in the air um and something like the haymarket affair um in 1886 which really did change the world i mean it 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 really kind of inspired international solidarity in a way that had probably not existed ever before then um it you know you saw people in in germany and in and in france and in and in russia outraged at what had happened to the leaders of 
uh, of the Haymarket uh, riots and, and how they were and how they were hanged um, for 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 striking for the eight hour day. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully we can we can we can start, spark something similar um, this time around. Definitely. And to celebrate May Day, Jacobin is actually having an incredible promotion that I highly recommend that you guys take advantage of. Um, So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, You can subscribe to Jacobin for just $1. And that's what we're doing to celebrate May Day. Um, I I recommend you guys do it because you have access to so many important pieces written by uh, thinkers that are not represented, certainly in mainstream media, not represented in corporate media. And these are perspectives contextualized through history that help you understand where we are and where we need to go. Um, so you can learn more about that by going to uh, this URL, bit.ly slash maydaymag. It's bit.ly slash maydaymag. Yeah, the latest issue is beautiful. It is on the ruling class. Uh, look at that. I mean, once you get it and you feel the texture of it, you see the level of care that goes into each individual issue of Jacobin. I mean, I, I really do think that each each issue of Jacobin is incredibly special. They're almost like they're almost like a first they're definitely like a first draft of history in a way, but also contextualizing the current moment, but also individual works of art in that the design of Jacobin is second to none, really. Like even even more well capitalized uh magazines in America, like they they pale in comparison to the beauty and care that goes into every single issue of Jacobin. I recommend uh, this one as I recommend all of them, really. I mean, I I remember specific issues of Jacobin in a way that I don't remember specific issues of, you know, any other magazine. Um, So uh, I'm just constantly in awe at the at the quality that 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 is that is imbued into each issue and really just how the, the political effects of Jacobin as a media institution, uh, not just here in the United States, but around the world. I mean, people know Jacobin um, in Brazil, people know Jacobin in the UK, people know Jacobin in Spain, um, where I'm from. So um, really just an, an, an incredible publication. And you really, if you don't subscribe to it, um, you really should take advantage of this, of this May Day offer. I mean, how can you, how can you not, how can you not hop on? It's one dollar. One dollar. One dollar. Yeah. Adam McKay tweeted about it. Rob Delaney tweeted about it. All the celebs are getting in on it. Get in on it, people. Yeah. I, you don't want to miss this offer. It's so good. And I just look, spent a dollar and look what I got. Well, okay, no. To be fair, if you want this, hair. if you want to, you want if you want to see all of our articles online, it's one dollar. But if you want this, which look how shiny it is. Look at that. Yeah. It's okay, embossed. Made it's made with really literal nice. gold. Literal gold. Um, this is ten dollars, uh, but I'm going to show you right now. I, over one on your screens. Uh, if you're not in front of a computer, get in front of a computer. Some of you watch this on TVs, but get in front of your computer. And uh, we're going to go to the Jacobin website right now. And if Ooh. you go to the Jacobin website, you're going to see this this article. Well, let me let me do it properly. See this, and then you see this. There's Megan's piece. We're going to talk about that in a bit. Uh, you go here. And it says, uh, okay, just $1. You follow this link. We're going to click that link. I hope everyone's doing this together with me. Um, and when you get Riveting here, stuff. you can you can buy it for yourself or for someone else, someone you love, someone you care about, someone you want to love. Um, you can send it as a gift. 
Uh, but I'm going to choose personal, uh, and I'm going to I'm going to start with a print. And okay, well, typically it's like thirty bucks, which to be fair is still a pretty good amount of money for four issues over a year. Um, but because of today, it's ten dollars. It's ten dollars, and so I'm going to I'm not going to put in my email, but um, you know you can. It, I have one, and uh, someone will find it online, and they will probably send me something. But um, uh, you fill out all your information. Look, ten dollars submit. But maybe maybe you don't want that. Maybe you just want the digital. Which again, you do all this, and it's literally just a dollar. It's one dollar for all these great issues and articles, and um, basically over ten years of uh, modern socialist analysis of everything going on in the world, uh, not just here globally, that we're like one of the most uh, global left outlets right now. So it's a, it, it's a steal. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah Cal, uh, it's a steal, baby. It's a steal, uh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, giving this away. I'm giving this away. I, I, I'm, what am I doing? This is terrible. I'm going to lose so much money on this. I'm giving it away. <laughs> if you, like if one you of those see guys. me in New York today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave my house after the show. And if you see me, I will give you this issue. But if you don't see me, you have to get it online. So do one of the tweet two. out your exact location. Put your, uh, <laughs> you know, do share your location on your iPhone for the viewers at home. You won't do it. You won't do it, Kill, because you're scared. You're scared I'm, of the viewers. I'm typing my phone number into the chat right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Okay, yeah. seriously, buy the issue. It's good. Yeah, it's definitely good. Absolutely, and to to Kale's point. Um, you know, he mentioned how it's recognized internationally. I remember when I wanted some good reading material on the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh. No one's writing about that. Like no, no one no one understands the nuances of it. And Jacobin was the only place I can go to that gave me a really uh, a comprehensive look uh, and a nuanced take on what was going down on the ground. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's incredible. And it's it's it really always remarkable when something like Nagorno-Karabakh happens. And, you know, when it, when, it, when it happens in real time, you know, you'll see the, the media cover it somewhat and whatever. But, like, they, they're reactive. Whereas mm -hmm. when something like Nagorno-Karabakh happens and you type in Nagorno-Karabakh Jacobin, you'll see, like, some article from, like, five or six years ago. Like, it's, it's, it's crazy the level of, com of, of comprehensiveness that exists. Like, they, they predicted the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh, not, not, not because they're clairvoyant or whatever, but because they, they do really have a global vision and are following the situation that happens all over the world um not just when things flare up but when things be before things flare up so so it's always it's always just an incredible resource in that sense absolutely well let's uh move on to our decode segment so we don't uh keep professor wolf waiting too long for the interview um and i'll get started today with a discussion about woke culture which, you know, turns out to be something that even uh, corporate Democrats and Democratic strategists are concerned about, like James Carville. James Carville, a longtime political strategist with a knack for defending the Democratic Party's shift to neoliberalism, now has a problem with what neoliberalism has reduced the party to. In an interview with Vox, Carville offered a pretty salty rejection of woke culture, and he even argued that Biden's biggest attribute is that he's not into faculty lounge politics. They come up with a word like Latinx that no one else uses. Now, I think that the example of the word Latinx is perfect to describe uh, the problem with woke culture. Essentially, 
people coming in and deciding to change an entire language uh, based on identity-related politics, even when the very people who speak that language never asked for it. But he goes on to say that as a result, large parts of the country view Democrats as an urban, coastal, arrogant party, and a lot gets passed through that filter. That's a real thing. I don't give a damn what anyone thinks about it. It's a real phenomenon, and it's damaging to the party brand. And to be clear, he's right about that. You know, on the surface, when you read these statements, it's it's hard to disagree with him. Carville, in fact, even brings up the same jarring examples of class dealignment that the social socialist left is concerned about, mentioning how in 2018 in Florida, giving felons the right to vote got 64 percent. In 2020, a $15 an hour minimum wage. Has anyone in the Democratic Party said maybe there's nothing wrong with the state of Florida? Maybe the problem is the kind of campaigns we're running. Now, again, Carville has a point, but he seems to be oblivious to class D-alignment in the first place. Uh, He obviously feels like there's something afoot, there's something wrong, but he can't really put his finger on it and he really just boils it down to language and messaging. But there's more to it than that. In fact, his own class interests stop him from considering the severity of the problem and limit him to critiques of unpopular slogans and finger-wagging by PC enforcers. If Carville really stopped to ask himself what the Democratic establishment would campaign on in the absence of woke posturing, what would it be? What would their sincere politics be? What would their message be? How would they appeal to voters? And how did the party get to where it is today? Much like establishment Republicans who intentionally base their politics on culture and nonsense, like Mr. Potato Head, to avoid having substantive discussions about inequalities, the Democratic Party has latched onto its own version of the culture war, uh, the culture soup du jour, uh, whether it be the Me Too era or other identity-related matters. Jacobin contributor and historian Matt Carp actually touched on this during a recent episode of The Jacobin Show. And if you look at the numbers in different contexts, if you look at, say, how the difference between the Obama campaign and the, and the Biden campaign in the U.S., you see not just broader trends that are that are working against class politics, but you see the calculated you do see the calculated malice of Chuck Schumer. You see the, the way in which um, the sort of both um, the, the political rhetoric of and the, and the style and the kind of milieu of the Democratic Party, you know, from those ubiquitous you know, love is love lawn signs that don't mention any material issue to, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, various positionings on economic versus social issues to it's um, to the extent to which it offers, you know, limp, but on, you know, essentially a pretty for for the last, you know, 40 years, very either hostile, either hostile, direct hostility to labor or a very uh, soft support for it. You see all sorts of um, you see all sorts of ways in which these calculated decisions, both on the policy front and on the campaign trail, on the on the politics front, have produced this coalition that they want. 
Carp is absolutely right about that. I mean, when it comes to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, a huge part of the discussion that was missing from the Democratic Party's uh, messaging had to do with the socioeconomic status tied to uh, the way policing is, is, is done in this country. What police historically have represented in this country, uh, both in uh, dealing with race, but also dealing with labor in the United States. As an electoral strategy, by the way, this has been disastrous for the Democratic Party. As Dustin Guastella writes in Jacobin, far from signaling a commitment to vital social causes, being woke has become synonymous with an embrace of niche cultural attitudes found only in highly educated urban districts and among Twitter users, 80% of whom are affluent millennials. And uh, Guastella continues to write that this does have a negative impact on uh, the Democratic Party strategically, electorally. Uh, professorial class progressives only make up about 13% of the electorate, and they almost never vote for anyone other than Democrats. Alternatively, as Peter Hall and Georgina Evans show, about 22% of voters dislike cosmopolitan and increasingly out-of-touch liberal cultural appeals, but believe in a progressive economic agenda, and these voters are largely working class. And guess what? We already know what successful Democratic campaigns look like. We know what successful campaigns look like, period, whether it's a Democrat or Republican. We don't even have to travel too far back. To, to, to witness it, to see it, to understand it. It happened in 2008 with Barack Obama. You see, we Democrats have a very different measure of what constitutes progress in this country. We measure progress by how many people can find a job that pays the mortgage. Whether you can put a little extra money away at the end of each month so you can someday watch your child receive her college diploma. We measure progress in the 23 million new jobs that were created when Bill Clinton was president. When the average American family saw its income go up $7,500 instead of go down $2,000 like it has under George Bush. We measure the strength of our economy not by the number of billionaires we have or the profits of the Fortune 500, but by whether someone with a good idea can take a risk and start a new business, or whether the waitress who lives on tips can take a day off and look after a sick kid without losing her job. Now, as we all know, Obama won not one but two elections by using very similar messaging that appealed to working Americans and their material needs. Now, unfortunately, each time he won, it was followed with policies that only exacerbated the inequality that we're experiencing in this country today. And as a result, there was a giant political price to pay. We drove south from Atlanta about an hour and a half to Fort Valley, where we sat down with eight black voters from across middle Georgia. The group was split between Democrats and Republicans, unlike the broader black electorate, which overwhelmingly votes Democratic. We did this to better understand what voters from both parties are concerned about heading into the 2020 election. Raise your hand if you voted for Barack Obama in 2008. Keep your hand up if you voted for him again in 2012. We lost John. And uh, raise your hand if you voted for Donald Trump in 2016. John, I want to start with you. We were for Obama in 2008. I know you supported Donald Trump in 2016. Can you talk a little bit about what um, appealed to you about President Trump? When I started looking at the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, it kind of seemed like our government 
lost touch with the people. And so I felt like many that, hey, we needed a bull in the China shop. And I didn't elect President Trump or support President Trump because he had coof, because he was had etiquette. No, I I wanted a gangster in, in the daggone White House to just wreck shop. Now, this isn't that difficult to understand. I mean, think about what the Democratic Party focused the majority of its messaging on. It was, yes, the the Latinx type language that must be used. You know, you, you have to act a certain way. You have to speak a certain way. And while all the focus tended to be on these um, honestly superficial cultural issues that didn't even really deal with what uh, various groups of people or various demographics were experiencing, whether it be the black community, uh, you know, communities of color. Uh, what it did was just go around judging other people um, as either good or bad based on the rhetoric or language they choose to use. And it ignored, again, the economic conditions that so many people had become increasingly frustrated by, especially after the 2008 economic collapse and the not-so-great policies that followed. And Dustin Guastella also writes this. It's easy to make sense of it. One way of looking at the past 12 years of American politics is to say that in both 2008 and 2016, workers voted for the change candidate. They voted for perceived outsiders, and they voted against Washington. And the outsider candidates uh, represented um, this paradigm shift away from the last several decades of neoliberalism. Now, let's be clear. They were liars and they actually carried out the same policies that they claimed to be against. But their messaging in their campaigning was very different from that. Both Barack Obama and Donald Trump argued that they could save workers. In both campaigns, workers voted for a candidate who promised to take on elites, renegotiate NAFTA, build our education system, and stem the poverty, disease, and violence that plague so many American neighborhoods. Woke framing ends up being a massive political liability for Democrats, and this is being borne out of more and more research. Um, and I'm sure this research is going to lead to a lot of controversy. We'll talk about it in just a little bit. But right before the 2020 election, the Wall Street Journal ran a focus group with black voters in rural Georgia. This reaction regarding identity politics and PC culture certainly stood out. Take a look. I wanted to talk about... Um political correctness or identity politics in the country. I'm very concerned about that in the society because we are being catered to based on our so-called identity and we're not anymore talking about what Martin Luther King talked about, Mm -hmm. character. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about that anymore. It's skin, it's religion, Mm -hmm. the least important thing about a person, as far as I'm concerned, is what they look like or what they claim to be. The anecdotal evidence that you just heard is backed up by numbers as well. It's backed up by some research. Um, And while, look, Democrats, of course, certainly continue to attract uh, the majority of black voters, the fact of the matter is they lost some ground in 2020 where Trump was able to increase his support among these groups of voters. For instance, Trump won 12 percent of the black vote, which is the highest share for a Republican candidate in the past 20 years. Trump also improved on his 2016 performance among Hispanic voters. He achieved the highest level of Hispanic support, 32 percent. 
And more recently, a new study from a pair of political scientists from Yale offer us even more evidence that most people of all identities dislike identity-framed politics. English and Kala surveyed 5,081 adults and asked them about six policies, increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour, forgiving $50,000 in student loan debt, affordable housing, the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, decriminalizing marijuana, and erasing prior convictions. The participants in the survey were randomly assigned to read about these policies in a race, class, or class plus race frame. And the results were fascinating slash really not that surprising when you understand the popular nature of universal policies as opposed to policies that are targeted toward one group of people versus the other. Broadly, the political scientists find, our results are consistent with much of the existing research that shows many white Americans and Republicans in particular remain wary of endorsing policies explicitly aimed at achieving racial equity. Furthermore, this is the part that's relevant. We find that a class frame that speaks to the economic impacts of these policies is generally the most effective at increasing policy support across a wide range of demographic subgroups. And by the way, this was true of Democrats and independents as well. Unsurprisingly, white Republicans are the most opposed to woke signaling, but they find that racial framing decreases support across the board for race-neutral progressive policies. That's a big problem, especially when you consider the messaging that we're seeing from the Democratic Party today. And while the Bernie campaign allowed many of us to organize in a way that was left but not woke, far too often the left embraces wokeness in their own campaigning, messaging, and election postmortems. Guastella writes about this as well, and I think he provides important examples. Progressives and socialists are now pairing ambitious and urgently necessary proposals like Medicare for All with widely unpopular and sometimes counterproductive policy positions. Further, progressives have embraced a radicalized worldview that reduces whole populations to their skin color. This is a giant problem, and I I feel that it's not really being addressed enough because it comes across as incredibly insulting uh, to the very people that we are trying to represent, that we're trying to um, improve the lives of. Woke ideology has prevented many on the left from grasping the possibility that a Mexican-American may care more about health care than immigration, that a woman might be more motivated by economic promises than electing a first female president or that Trump might be able to improve his vote share among working class black voters. In order to build a coalition broad enough to actually win, in order to implement the policies that we want, this type of thinking actually needs to be rejected by the left. Depending on your definition, The working class makes up between 55 and 70% of the country. The vast majority of this group shares a great deal in common politically, but in order or, but in our broader political culture, working people are more often expected to sort themselves into groups, um, in groups called communities than they are encouraged to think of themselves as part of a class. Decided to just get past that word. I have a difficult time pr- pronouncing it. Um, so let's end with what Carville had to say about Biden. This high praise regarding uh, Biden's rejection of woke language and woke culture. For the most part, Carville is right. Biden was willing to engage in deficit spending, for instance, uh, to pass the coronavirus relief bill and has 
also, of course, proposed um, an infusion of federal funding into proposals to improve our infrastructure, both physical and human infrastructure. Now, uh, there are some issues, though, because immediately after passing his uh, his relief bill, you may have noticed that the Biden administration has now pivoted to the deficit hawk posturing that we should be concerned about. Um, and you can hear it in the speech that he gave to a joint session of Congress. Take a listen. How do we pay for my jobs and family plan? I made it clear we can do it without increasing the deficits. Let's start with what I will not do. I will not impose any tax increase on people making less than $400,000. But it's time for corporate America and the wealthiest 1% of Americans to just begin to pay their fair share. Just their fair share. Now, obviously, the wealthy uh, do not want to pay their fair share. Corporations don't want to pay their fair share. And based on where we see the current debate at right now, you can notice that even Biden himself is not trying to increase the corporate tax rate to what it was before the Trump administration, 35 percent. He proposed 28 percent, and the end result is likely going to be 25 percent. I mention that because if you don't have a way of paying for it in this ideal world that he set up for himself, where you engage in pay-go politics, right, the deficit spending concerns— then you're going to end up stripping these policies of the very provisions that improve the lives of working people. Even his own advisors are reverting back to deficit hawk territory. But what he wanted to make sure to do is he wanted to make sure they were able to we were able to pay for it and not put this burden on the American on the American people. As it comes to health care, Biden has said this. President Biden has said this over and over again. He believes health care is a right So again, we're hearing about the deficit, and if Biden has rightly rejected the woke messaging, the woke campaigning, and if he's also simultaneously, you know, walking away from popular economic policies that would actually improve people's lives, what would the end result be? Now, David Dayen, I have to share this point of view because it's important. Biden doesn't have to be so concerned about paying for these these proposals as he goes. If there's any type of spending that doesn't require paying for it, as they're, they're, they are investments that pay off in the future, it's infrastructure spending, be it physical or human infrastructure. The fact sheet on the American Families Plan cited a paper showing that every dollar invested in early childhood education yields $7.30 in benefits. So why are we paying for it ahead of time? Again, it's an investment in the future that pays dividends. So Biden should continue with the policies and the ideas that he had in the beginning of his administration, the ideas that actually improve people's lives and refuse to give into the deficit hawk framing on how governing should be done. And to be quite honest with you, if he doesn't do that, if he doesn't actually uh, provide um, the results of the promises that he made during his campaign and during the beginning of his administration, much like we experienced with Obama, there will be a political price to pay. And so it's not just about avoiding the woke posturing. It's also about promising, messaging that you're going to improve the lives of workers materially and then following through on those promises. And I definitely think that this is uh, the perfect 
type of discussion to have today on May Day, International Workers' Day. And Nando, I'd love for you to come in and have that discussion with me. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the Carville thing reminds me a little bit of that that famous quote in Big Lebowski, the you're not wrong, you're just an asshole. Um, you know, because Carville obviously is one of the architects of the Bill Clinton campaign, um, which was the sort of um, full embrace of neoliberalism by the Democratic Party. It was the final victory of neoliberalism within the Democratic Party. It kind of gave a bipartisan um you know, sheen to neoliberalism after uh, the Reagan administration and uh, and Bush Senior, um, and it's I find it interesting because Bill Clinton himself, you know, the Clintons have rebranded themselves as like woke icons in a way. Uh, Bill Clinton, his original political innovation was to dial back the um, wokeness, so to speak, even back then of the Democratic Party and that, you know, they got crushed when they sent uh, two northern liberals to uh, to be their their standard bearers in, in Walter Mondale and Michael Dukakis, who was from Massachusetts mm-hmm. and Mondale was from Minnesota. Um, Clinton was this like southern guy who, you know, could speak, uh, you know, could speak with a southern accent. And he, um, you know, executed Ricky Ray Rector in the middle of his campaign to show that he wasn't, you know, you know, he wasn't going to kowtow to those blacks. I mean, the 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 sort of. The, the conventional wisdom that that has emerged from Clinton's campaign was that he was like, uh, you know, very good with uh, very good at sort of um, securing black support. And that's true to some extent. Um, but really, his the thing that he did was he stopped the bleeding um, that Democratic Party had with white working class voters, mostly by signaling to them um, that he wasn't that woke, uh, that, in fact, he was dialing it back. Uh, uh, from the Democratic Party, so um, it's interesting to see that the Clintons have now rebranded themselves as as um, as like you know woke people or whatever. Um, but it's it but, yeah yeah no Go no ahead. I just wanted to touch on that real quick because it's such a good point and there's there's a reason for that right and the reason is the same reason you see the GOP focus on their own brand of culture war nonsense right. Why is it that they're so focused on Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head? That's the, in in their minds, the red meat that they need to give to their constituents to maintain support. But the point that, you know, we're trying to make through this segment is that it doesn't work because it doesn't, at the end of the day, workers, whether they identify as Democrats or Republicans, are going to sit back and be like, Okay, yeah, we just spent the last few months debating whether or not we should use words like Latinx, but how did that improve my life exactly? How did yeah. that improve the lives of Latinos in America? You get what yeah. I'm saying? So it's it's a very shallow for the Democrats, the shallow attempt at appealing to uh, racial issues without actually doing anything about those issues or doing anything about the underlying socioeconomic problems that exacerbate their living conditions and their yeah. working conditions. Yeah, and I, I think that the um, the Democratic Party's embrace and liberals writ large their embrace of what Adolf Reed calls race reductionism, um, I think, is just disgusting to to the vast majority of people. Um, even the people who it purportedly seems to uh, claims to help, um, people don't like to be sort of lumped into or, or judged by 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 their appearance the color of their skin people just don't like that they don't even if it's like they're being judged in a quote of positive way if that makes sense like they just don't like yep. to be kind of prejudged for things that are completely out of their control um and and it's not just 
and it's not just like wrong on a tactical level, like which it is. You know, it's very clear the data, as you show in in the segment, is very clear that people just just hate that. Outside of like a, a small elite that kind of benefits from that, um, it's clear that that most people hate that. But it is also wrong. Just it's just wrong. It's just wrong to do that. It's wrong to uh, to judge people for the color of their skin even if even if it's like in a way like in a, in a positive way and mm-hmm. what it does the effect of it is as dustin points out is anti-solidaristic it divides people it creates divisions mm-hmm. in the society you know like I, you know biden this week uh said you know biden's like the least woke guy of all time and biden this week said like no i don't believe that the vast majority of americans are racist you know, which is just contra all of the liberal kind of trends these days. Yeah. And like, you know, they get mad at him for that kind of stuff. But like, first of all, like it makes total like, why would you just go around telling people that you want their support from that? They're just racist all the time. Like, it's the last right, thing. That, right. It's, it's the it, stupidest thing in the world. Like, if you're the president, total common sense. Yeah, of yeah. course. It's like not rocket science over here, you know. Um, so, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, um, let's do a little foreign policy before uh, Professor Wolf joins us to talk about May Day. Yes, absolutely. Well, I wanted to take my uh, turn my attention to um, Kamala Harris's comments this week because they really got under my skin. So one of the most horrendous atrocities committed by the Trump administration was its treatment of the so-called unaccompanied minors who showed up at the border seeking entry into the United States Kids in cages became a sort of rallying cry against the Trump administration as people were rightly horrified by the images of children huddled in detention centers, many of them dying from disease and malnutrition. Well, the Biden administration is now in power and the kids are still in cages, as you can see from the images. In fact, uh, March saw a record number of Central American children show up at the southern border. Now, more than 3,200 unaccompanied migrant children are in Border Patrol custody, and that's a record high. Nearly half of the children, 1,400 of them, have been held beyond the three-day legal limit in holding cells not designed for children. And despite the Biden administration's calls to end family detention, a senior border official says they're continuing the practice. But not to worry, Vice President Kamala Harris is on the case. From an Associated Press report, quote, President Joe Biden has tapped Vice President Kamala Harris to lead the White House effort to, ta- effort to tackle the migration challenge at the U.S. southern border and work with Central American nations to address root causes of the problem. Quote, when she speaks, she speaks for me, Biden said, noting her past work as California's attorney general makes her spe- specially equipped to lead the administration's response. I don't know if that's the... That's the the real zinger he thinks it is. Now, the majority of the migrants come from the part of the world known as the Northern Triangle, which is El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. So Kamala Harris met with the president of Guatemala to talk about the migrant uh, crisis, and she gave him a piece of her mind. There are also longstanding issues that um, are often called the root causes of immigration. We are looking at the issue of poverty, and the lack, therefore, of economic opportunities, the issue of extreme weather conditions uh, and the lack of climate adaptation, as well as corruption and the lack of good governance, and violence against women, indigenous people, LGBTQ people, and Afro-descendants. Now, first of all, 
setting aside the brazen hypocrisy of an American vice president lecturing any other country about, quote, violence against women, indigenous people, LGBTQ people, and Afro-descendants, given our sordid history of slavery, Jim Crow, and Native American genocide, it's particularly infuriating to see an American vice president say that when discussing Guatemala. You see, I don't think you can find a single country on earth that has suffered more at the hands of American imperial domination than Guatemala. And to the extent that that country has its problems, and it does, and its president is a right-wing maniac, and he is, those problems were caused by the United States. So you see, in the decades after the Spanish-American War of 1898, which really inaugurated the American empire outside of the continental United States, the U.S. government continuously sent Marines into Central America in a series of interventions to put down strikes and revolutions in order to protect U.S. business interests there, most of them banana companies. This is why they were dubbed the, quote, Banana Wars. The most famous veteran of the Banana Wars was Smedley Butler, the most decorated U.S. soldier of all time, who then became an anti-war activist. In his classic speech and then book, War is a Racket, Butler said, quote, I spent 33 years and four months in active military service as a member of this country's most agile military force, the Marine Corps. I served in all commissioned ranks from second lieutenant, gen- uh, second lieutenant to major general. And during that period, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. He continues, I helped make Mexico, especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests. In 1914, I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National Citibank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American Republicans, republics for the benefits of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909-1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic, Re- Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. In China, I helped to see to it that Standard Oil went its way unmolested. Now, one of the main beneficiaries of these banana wars was the United Fruit Company, which ran massive banana plantations throughout Central America, including Guatemala, where it was an absolutely dominant force in the country. United Fruit was known as the octopus for the way it held Guatemala in its grip. The octopus controlled 40,000 jobs. It owned half the country's arable land. Almost all the country's railroad tracks belonged to United Fruit. In 1952, Guatemalan workers toiled for 50 cents a day. United Fruit reported an annual profit of $65 million, twice the total revenue of the Guatemalan government. A beautiful bunch, a ripe banana. Fifty ships, known as the Great White Fleet, hauled the bananas away to American supermarkets. They were sold under the brand name of Chiquita. Now, while this made U.S. consumers very happy because they got beautiful, cheap bananas, and it made U.S. capitalists very happy because they made handsome profits on those cheap bananas, the Guatemalan people were not very happy. So in 1950, they elected a man named Jacobo Arbenz to the presidency on a platform of land reform, and this made the CEO of United Fruit, a guy named, I kid you not, Sam the Banana Man, very unhappy. The man who ran United Fruit was Sam Zamore whose nickname was Sam the Banana Man. In 1952, Sam was not happy. A new government in Guatemala 
wanted some of Sam's bananas. To improve social conditions, Guatemala forced United Fruit to sell back part of its land, then gave it in parcels to a hundred thousand peasants. It was the brainchild of an idealistic president, Jacobo Arbenz, who thought land reform would save his country. He might as well have declared war on the United States. In the Eisenhower administration, the Secretary and Undersecretary of State, the head of the CIA, and the UN ambassador all had ties to the United Fruit Company. And so, at the behest of the United Fruit Company, a brand spanking new agency in the American government known as the Central Intelligence Agency did its maiden coup d'etat in Guatemala. Fighting ends in Guatemala. These rebel troops, backed by air power, have compelled the ousting of Guatemala's pro-communist regime and have won a ceasefire from... This is the story that most Americans heard. In fact, it was raw fiction. An imaginary revolution invented by the Eisenhower administration. The truth was that the U.S. government had staged a coup of a democratically elected government to protect U.S. economic interests. There was economic imperialism done covertly under the name of democracy and anti-communism done by the CIA with the American press kept out in a way that would make it look like it was something very different. One of the key operatives in this elaborate cover story was an ex-marine named Phil Redinger. I was called over to the Latin American branch and one of my friends was over there and he said, say, we've got a job for you. And I said, what are you talking about? So we want you to uh, take over the government of Guatemala. Of course, I've been hearing about this, but I said, well, what, what do you, this is out of my activity. He said, listen, you're a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps and you could do anything. <laughs> you know that, don't you? <laughs> Nobody in the government ever thought that Guatemala was any threat to the United States. What they were the threat to was the United Fruit Company. That's the only reason, the only reason in the world. Now, after the U.S. successfully deposed Arbenz and as such halted his land reform, the U.S. installed a right-wing military dictatorship in his place. And by 1960, the Guatemalan people rose up to oppose the dictatorship, thereby starting a civil war that would last for 36 years. The war soon morphed into a campaign of outright genocide by the U.S.-backed Guatemalan government on its own people, the vast majority of which were indigenous Mayans. So think about that when Kamala Harris tries to lecture us about Guatemala's violence against indigenous peoples. Now, the worst atrocities in, Guam in Guatemala were committed probably in the early 1980s during the dictatorship of Efraín Ríos Montt, who enjoyed the full backing of the Reagan administration. The army first moved into Quiche province in late 1981. It was determined to eliminate the last stronghold of a 3,000-man guerrilla force which had been challenging its rule of Guatemala ever since the early 1960s. Soon terrible rumors began to leak out from these secret hills of civilians massacred, women raped and tortured, villages burnt. A church report said the army's operations have resulted in a horrendous human tragedy Amnesty International published verbatim accounts of widespread massacres. Yet the US government did its best to shift the blame from the army to the left-wing guerrillas. 
It has been established that some of the alleged atrocities never occurred. In most cases known to have occurred, it has not been possible to determine whether the guerrillas or the army was responsible. It appears more likely that in the majority of cases, the insurgents have been guilty. Now, the toll of the 36-year genocidal war is unimaginable. Remember, this was started by the United States in intervention against Arbenz, and the violence was fueled and supported by various U.S. administrations for decades. And according to the Center for Justice and Accountability, quote, over 200,000 Guatemalans were killed or forcibly disappeared in a civil war that raged from 1960 to 1996. Of those victims identified in the UN-sponsored Historical Clarification Commission, 83% were indigenous Maya, 93% of these human rights violations were carried out by government forces. Now, all of this violence, of course, is the root cause of the migrant crisis we see today. Because had the U.S. allowed the Guatemalan people to exercise their democratic rights, they would have climbed out of poverty a long, long time ago. But lest you think that this kind of thing is all just ancient history, let's go way back to the Obama administration. You know, the one where Joe Biden had Kamala's current job, that of vice president. In 2009, the Obama administration supported a right-wing military coup in Guatemala's neighbor, Honduras. And we end today's show in Honduras to look at some of the root causes of the migration crisis and how it links to U.S. foreign policy. Honduras recently marked the 10th anniversary of the U.S.-backed coup that ousted the democratically elected President Manuel Zelaya. The coup was orchestrated by the Honduran military, business and political elite with the support of the Obama administration. Since then, extreme poverty and violence has skyrocketed in Honduras. Tens of thousands of Hondurans have been murdered, including more than 300 LGBTQ people about 60 journalists, hundreds of peasant rights and environmental activists. Tens of thousands of refugees have also fled Honduras, most with the hope of receiving political asylum in the United States. Meanwhile, mass protests are continuing to take place in Honduras against the right-wing government of Juan Orlando Hernandez and his plans to privatize health care, pensions and education. Now, Zelaya was replaced, as she mentioned, by the right-wing Juan Orlando Hernández, who is still the president today. Now, Hernández has pursued a curious policy of what can only be called narco-neoliberalism, in which he is privatizing all manner of public services, from the water to the electricity, while being personally involved in drug trafficking. Now, predictably, this has led to a social crisis in Honduras, which is fueling the migrant crisis. So, yeah. Kamala's comments really got under my skin. It's not just the brazen hypocrisy of it all, which is bad enough. It's also the woke framing of it all. I mean, and this kind of woke imperialism has been a trend as of late. And perhaps the OG of woke imperialism, Hillary Clinton, happened to be in the news this week with an unrelated bit of woke imperialism after she teamed up with fellow girl boss Condoleezza Rice to oppose the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Now, the war in Afghanistan was originally sold as a sort of payback for 9-11. But after that got stale and Osama bin Laden was killed and dumped into the sea, they needed to find a new marketing ploy, and they found one in women's rights. This is from a CNN story from just a couple weeks ago. Uh, Concerns mount that U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan could risk progress on women's rights. This is from the article, Republican Rep. Michael Waltz of Florida, who serves as co-chair of the Women, Peace and Security Caucus, said when he served in Afghanistan as a special forces officer, he saw girls' schools machine gunned with the girls in them. Quote, I've seen acid thrown on their faces, he said. We've made tremendous gains. 
We need to protect those gains. Senator Jean Shaheen, a New Hampshire Democrat, told CNN that she's very concerned that the gains made by women in Afghanistan will not be protected if the U.S. withdraws. We have, I believe, not just a human rights imperative to support women. It's been part of what we've done since we've got into Afghanistan, but it's also about ensuring the stability, the future stability of the country in any agreement. Democratic Rep. Lois Lois Frankel of Florida, who is the co-chair of the Women, Peace and Security Caucus, also expressed concerns that the gains made by women over the past years could evaporate. We don't want to go backwards, she said, adding to the concerned members of Congress would work closely with our administration to do everything that's reasonably possible to make sure that the progress made for human rights in Afghanistan continue. Now, you can see what's going on here. The Afghanistan war has been an utter calamity from the very beginning. The Afghan papers published by the Washington Post show that everything the U.S. government has said about the war has been a lie. And the human costs of the American war on terror are almost incalculable. But according to the Watson Institute at Brown University, quote, at least 800,000 people have been killed by direct war violence in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, and Pakistan. More than 310,000 civilians have been killed in the fighting since 2001. Millions of people living in the war zones have also been displaced by war. The U.S. post-9-11 wars have forcibly displaced at least 37 million people. I'm guessing some women are in that number as well. In and from Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, the Philippines, Libya, and Syria. This number exceeds the total displaced by every war since 1900 except World War II. But, you know, women's rights. So be wary of this new kind of woke imperialism. While it can often be very funny, like that time the U.S. Navy painted one of its fighter jets pink for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, it is incredibly sinister. The Biden administration's record on foreign policy so far has been absolutely atrocious. It is virtually indistinguishable from Trump's at this point. The only real difference is how they talk about it. Instead of the blunt fire and brimstone of guys like Trump and Pompeo, it's now wrapped in the language of social justice, do not fall for it. In fact, you see quite a bit of that with uh, the Biden administration and the language regarding uh, China, human rights abuses in China. Um, And, you know, they do tend to say the quiet parts out loud. Uh, There's also a lot of talk about the economic competition, which you know, the United States empowered by uh, allowing U.S. business interests to exploit cheap labor in China, and then they turn around and they cry about um, the consequences to that. Um, but I think I think that this is exactly what the Jacobin media world offers to people, that you, you're just not going to get anywhere else. Because we've been discussing immigration almost every day, um, and when I say we, I mean the media in general, like oh, what's happening at the crisis it's, 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 or the border. It's a crisis. We need to do something about it right away. Or how many people are we going to turn back? How many people are we going to allow in? But there's never really an in-depth analysis about what the United States has not only done in, in overthrowing democratically elected leaders in, in these countries um, in order to pave the way for U.S. business interests, but also what the U.S. tends to export uh, to these countries, which uh, leads to the unstable, um, you know, situation, both economically and uh, crime-wise. For instance, uh, U.S. prisons. Obviously, we don't rehabilitate anyone here. Uh, People tend to go to prison as nonviolent offenders, and they come out as hardened criminals as a result of how we don't focus on rehabilitating people. We, we turn people into, you know, far more violent. And so, like, when we talk about MS-13, MS-13 wasn't created in El Salvador. 
MS-13 is a product of the United States, which we exported uh, back to El Salvador, and that uh, further um, created an unstable situation there. Same thing with our uh, the U.S.-led drug war um, and how that empowered drug cartels in places like Mexico. I mean, we have to take responsibility for our own policies, both foreign and domestic, that have exacerbated terrible situations around the world. Yeah, no, and it's it's always just seen as like this thing that happens. It's this thing that happens. They're just they're coming into our country. They're coming across the border. They're they're. It's just this thing that happens, and it's people don't uproot their lives and go on a dangerous journey across the jungle and then the desert and then you know dealing with U.S. Border Patrol and the violence that that that, that entails. They don't they don't they don't do that unless they have a very good reason, and the very good reason has been that the U.S. for over a century, has essentially turned their countries into uh, neo-feudal colonies for American business interests. And whenever they get uppity about it, they just send CIA-trained death squads to murder them. I mean, that's really the that's really the pattern of behavior um, for basically over a century. So I just I, I find the the framing uh, in the media just incredibly um, depressing about it, and it's just. And, and and especially the framing of now Kamala Harris was like, you know, I, I cannot believe that she said like she framed it in those terms. Like, I just couldn't believe it. Like, yeah, I, like, how do you how do the words even just come out of your mouth? You know, talking about like Guatemala's record with violence against Afro descendants. It's like, uh, do yeah. we? It's yeah, crazy. It's just it's crazy. So and it happens all the time. It yeah. happens all the time, which is pro- probably why it frustrates you because it's a trend, it's a pattern um, that they engage in with no remorse. Um, but you know, let's bring in our guest now, um, the legendary. Professor Richard Wolf, uh, the host of Democ- uh, Economic Update, and also a good friend of the show. Professor Wolf, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks to thanks to you for the invitation. So we wanted to discuss uh, the significance of May Day with you. It's something that's uh, certainly been co-opted, the the true history of it erased um, in the United States context. And uh, we couldn't think of anyone better than you to come and and help us unpack what what May Day really represents. Okay. Um, I won't dwell on the specific history. Folks can look that up. Uh, But basically... The day began in 1886 in Chicago. It's an American event that sparked the creation of this global, now global holiday. Uh, Very importantly, people had gathered for a big demonstration in Chicago to celebrate and to continue the struggle for what was then called the eight-hour day. And what that was about was that capitalists had typically employed people here in the United States in the previous century, uh, really since the beginning of the United States as an independent country, uh, and even before that, for 16, 14, 12, 10 hours a day, every day, six days a week, by the way, uh, until the working class in America began to do what it had also done in other parts of the world, which is fight back and say, no, it's inhumane to do that. And had been pushing for the eight-hour day. And the rally in Chicago uh, was for that. And as had been done, Lord knows how many times, somebody, no one ever really figured out who, uh, in a rally that was mostly peaceful, somebody threw a bomb, people got hurt, 
the government immediately arrested anarchist agitators. That's how they were called. Several of them were executed. Long story short, it became a kind of sign of, of the struggle working people, the vast majority, have to undertake against a dominant minority uh, that behaves in horrific ways. Listening to you talk a few moments ago about the U.S. history in Guatemala, you know, it's not all that different here at home. Much of the same astonishing words to cover a reality that couldn't be further uh, from the truth. And the, the only other interesting thing really about it is that around the world, the 1st of May, which is when that rally took place back in 1886 in Chicago, the 1st of May became a global working day, working men and women holiday. In many, many countries, uh, everything stops on May Day, big demonstrations, trade unions, socialist, communist, uh, political parties, labor parties, they all get together and they march down the major streets of cities around the world. They're doing it as we speak. Uh, only in the United States, uh, in the aftermath of World War II, when anti-communism went crazy in this country, it was decided not anymore uh, to celebrate or allow the celebration of May Day. After all, don't gasp now, communists celebrated too. So we had a shift. I don't remember exactly when that happened, but I, we had the shift. We canceled May Day and we established in the United States alone Labor Day, that first Monday in September to make it as far as possible away conceptually and historically from the May Day it once was. And it's this kind of a metaphor, if you like, for the attempt, systematic since 1945, to denigrate, to demote, and to uh, demonize everything on the left that questions or challenges capitalism as a system. Uh, first of all, Professor Wolf, I want to thank you for your camera looks great and you look great um, in, in, in HD, I got to say. Um, thank you for that. Uh, we, we're just coming off uh, the first 100 days of the Biden administration. I wanted to just get your take on the on Biden's economic policies so far. What do you like? What do you make of it? Well, uh, I think it's a, a mixed bag. I am taken and I want to be clear about it. I am taken with the fact that. What I had listened to the campaign, I kept hearing that the Biden, Obama, Clinton, Democratic Center was determined to get us back to normal, which kept being defined as back to the way things were before Trump got elected. And I remember thinking to myself, that is crazy. The way we were before Trump got elected was what got Trump elected. And if you're going to go back to that, you are paving the way for the next Trump, whether or not the name is spelled T-R-U-M-P or not, really doesn't matter. Um, and I will say, and I'm happy about it, that the Democratic Party center has moved to the left. Not all that far, as I'll explain in a moment, but there's definitely more willingness uh, to help people out 
to use the government as an offset to the awful failures of private capitalism in this country, which include the failure to prepare for or contain COVID, the failure to prepare for or contain the third economic collapse of this new century after the dot-com crash of 2000 and the subprime mortgage crash of 2008. I mean, the failures are spectacular. Private capitalism in the driver's seat. We've had 40 years of redistributing wealth and income in this country, roughly 1980 to 2020, going in the direction of taking wealth away from the bottom and away from the middle to give it especially to the tippity top. Never would we have been less in need of a tax cut for corporations and the rich than we were in 2017, and yet Mr. Trump gifted them with a bigger one than ever before. I mean, making inequality, of course, spike even further. Uh, I mean, the, the list is extraordinary. And I am taken with the fact that there is going to be work done to try to deal at least with some of the problems and to make the cost of it, at least to some degree, come out of the people who have been ripping us off for the last 40 years. So I, I admire that. I'm glad that that's happening. My understanding and the way I see it is that this is not so much a response uh, to Bernie and AOC, important as they have been. Uh, the pressure they've put on has certainly affected Mr. Uh, Biden's move to the left a little bit. Uh, and I don't want to take away credit from them for that. But I think it's basically that this is a system that is in terribly deep trouble. I tell a little story that might interest your, your viewers. Uh, because I went to Harvard and Yale and I know all those people and they know me and Janet Yellen was my classmate in, in graduate school and all the rest. Um, I'm in touch with those people. I know them personally, and they know me, etc. And when we get together occasionally for coffee or drinks, here's what is interesting. We don't agree on how we got into this situation, and we do not agree about how to get out. But we look around the table, and we are surprised to discover that very much the following sentence is believed by almost everyone. This is the worst condition of American capitalism in our lifetimes, uh, whether you look at the level of government debt, the astonishing level of corporate debt, the level of inequality, the stupefying reality that the United States has 4% of the world's population and 20% of the world's COVID deaths. I mean, you're looking at levels of dysfunction that are so many with all the social problems being aggravated along the way that it's very hard to see a way out and that Mr. Biden figured out with his advisors that they better do something is a tribute to just how bad it is and how bankrupt the traditional middle-of-the-road policies of both Republicans and Democrats have been. And so they're, they're gingerly going a little bit to the left. But the comparisons, this is my last point here, the comparisons with Franklin Roosevelt, I find amazing. First of all, let's be honest about all the good things Mr. Roosevelt did. Most of them have been undone after he died, after 1945. Whatever he did didn't make it durable. But what he did do makes what Mr. Biden is doing 
very pale and very modest. There's no grand institution building like Roosevelt did with Social Security or unemployment compensation. Roosevelt's regime passed the first minimum wage in America. This regime can't even get it to where it already is in every decent country of Western Europe and in many other parts of the world. And there's no federal jobs program of the sort that was an enormous success and crucial to everything in the New Deal. So, I mean, the comparison with Mr. Uh, Roosevelt, which should be a critical comparison, isn't to begin with. And it isn't accurate either. By comparison, what Mr. Biden is doing is much too little and much too late. Hmm. You know, to that point, um, you know, there are some signs indicating that the capitalists are are anxious. For instance, investment is down. Uh, Of course, money hoarding is happening in these offshore accounts. And as we all know, like clockwork, every 10 years or so, there's some sort of economic collapse. It's been 13 years since uh, the 2008 economic collapse. Um, Since we're almost, uh, you know, what do you suspect uh, is, is likely to happen in the near future? And, and what should the left do to basically deal with it or respond? Well, I'm no great viewer into the future um, any more or less than anybody else. So my best guess is that these policies, however much they help this or that part of the population, and I don't want to take away from the importance of it again, it's good to do but it will not solve the basic problems of this society. They have been kicked down the road so often. Uh, Whether you look at our race relationships, where it's kind of clear that whatever was done in the past isn't enough, I feel exactly the same way about our economic system. And I, therefore, am very pessimistic. I think it's going to get worse and that the people in the best condition to take advantage of the worsening is the same right wing that did it to get Trump in there and will figure out uh, or certainly try to make use of the failure to solve these problems. So my more important point is how to solve them. And I think the lesson to be learned, particularly from the last crisis, the Great Depression, and from all that was done by Roosevelt then, is that he didn't take the last step. He didn't take the step of saying the people who gather the profits of this society into their hands, the small minority we call employers or capitalists or whatever you want to call them, those people were left with regulations and rules and limits. And that's what the New Deal did. But because they were left in their positions of power at the top of enterprises, gathering into their hands the profits. They had every incentive to undo the New Deal, and the profits gave them the wherewithal to respond to those incentives. And lo and behold, in the last 50 years, that's what we did. The real wage became a bad joke, embarrassing in this country, in this world at this time. Much of the Social Security benefits were eaten up by inflation and other limitations uh, that are built into them. The same is true of unemployment. And there hasn't even been a discussion of of a federal jobs program, despite monumental unemployment. It seems to me that the lesson we have to learn and what the left needs to face up to and talk to is that you've got to change the internal structure of corporations and capitalism in America. And for me, the answer seems straightforward. It's the democratization of the enterprise. 
Stop allowing a tiny minority to sit at the top of every enterprise, the owner, the owner's family, the board of directors that are elected by the major shareholders. These are tiny groups of people who sit at the top of every, almost every enterprise, making all the key decisions, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and all the consequences of that. And then they decide to take the profits, which go into their hands, and lo and behold, give the bulk of them to themselves. This is a surprise. You, you have to face that if you don't change that, if you don't put the people, the workers and the communities into a democratic ownership and control of enterprises, you're not going to change the basic logic driving this system and frustrating those on the left who keep trying to change it but come up against an organization peculiarly well-suited to block and stop it. I wanted to uh, ask you about, um, I think, kind of piggybacking on what you just uh, what you just discussed, because I think that the, um, the, the majority of people that I see talking about the economic situation are predicting on the back of the COVID uh, lockdowns, and the sort of freeze that that put on economic activity um, as people get vaccinated here in the United States, although not not in the rest of the world. But here in the United States, the vaccine has been rolled out, you know, remarkably quickly, I would say. Um, and, and you know, people are preparing for a white boy summer or, or, uh, or uh, you know, just an exciting kind of summer of, of hedonism and, and economic activity as they as they get out. And this coupled with the Biden stimulus and things like that is going to create um, uh, fuel and economic boom, the likes of which we haven't seen in a in a long time. W- what do you make of that narrative and uh, and 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 that whole talk? You know, it's possible, but I think it is wildly overblown. The comparisons that are made, indeed, the image that this is drawn from, is what happened after World War II. But it, other than that, there's no parallel here. World War II, let's remember, came at the end of a world war that had lasted six or so years in terms of its beginning. And that world war started at the end of a dozen years of global depression. You put that all together and you're talking nearly two decades of stalled consumption, of pent-up demand, all those phrases being thrown around now. What we have is one year or a year and a half. That's that's all the difference in the world. But there are more differences. Americans are loaded up with debt in a way they couldn't even dream of in 1946. Much of whatever money they get in their hands now will have to be devoted to doing away with some of the debt overhang that's crushing them. And that's a radical difference. Number three, the United States is more dependent on buying goods and services from abroad today than anything that happened in 1946. So much of the money being pumped in has been and will continue to flow out of the United States for all kinds of purposes. And finally, at the end of World War II, the United States emerged as the only significant capitalist power. All of the other ex-competitors and potential competitors had been effectively destroyed economically, if not militarily, and often both, by World War II. 
with the exception of the United States. We have a very different situation now because the, the United States faces an equal and more rapidly growing competitor, something we have not had for half a century. And the fumbling and bumbling of dealing with it is a sign that they don't know what to do about it or how to contain it. If you put all of that together, there are major obstacles to having anything remotely like these fantastic descriptions of a boom, which I understand come after a rough year, but that doesn't mean they aren't subject to the kind of criticism that a historical awareness really calls for. To end the interview, I would like to ask about Janet Yellen's proposal for a global minimum corporate tax. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And how much do you think it would do to, to solve some of the uh, issues or some of the problems that were brought forth by globalization? Well, with all due respect, um, I think this is rhetoric, this is window dressing, this is uh, uh, PR. That's all this is. The United States long ago lost the world position it once had to be able to come up with such an idea and actually see other countries feeling the need to fall into line. That's over. The United States cannot even get the Germans uh, to make any kind of change in the deal they've struck with Russia uh, to bring in that gas in the Nord Stream uh, pipeline. It's a wonderful example of the power the United States no longer has in the world. So it's just a suggestion. Many countries would have to sign on. Most of them aren't going to do it. Uh, If it did happen, and that's what she's pointing at. The real purpose is to lessen the opposition of big business in America, particularly multinational business, to any attempt to raise back the corporate tax uh, from the 21% Trump lowered it to, to the 35% it was before Trump lowered it. As it is, Mr. Biden only proposed halfway back to 28, mm-hmm. and everyone knows he's not going to get that either. If he gets anything, it'll be 24 or 5, something like that, which is really small. But they even have to mollify the big businesses about that. And the point then is, well, don't worry You won't be hurt by the competition of other countries and companies getting lower rates because we're out there beating the bushes to raise it everywhere else. So you won't be at a disadvantage for the little bit we're proposing to raise it. It's a demonstration of the craven relationship between the Democrats and big business, despite the rhetoric, because it's very hard-nosed. And all she's doing is saying, well, we will at least try to to make it less disadvantageous to be here in the United States. As I think you know, in economics, it's long been a tradition for us to distinguish between the posted rate of profit on on corporations and what's called the effective rate. In other words, what corporations actually pay is so different from what's posted that the economics profession, to do its analysis, has to deal with what the real rate is, 
we won't say real because that implies that the other one is phony, which it is. So we use a nice polite word like effective. But the effective rate of the United States wasn't 35% before. It was around 27%. And the effective rate now is in the neighborhood of 21 or 22%, which is more or less what it is in many other uh, advanced capitalist countries. So much of this palaver is a public rhetorical game around posted rates that aren't the reality, neither for the corporations, nor for the government, nor even the late in the, in the game economics profession, which has had to accommodate these realities. Professor Richard Wolf, always great to have you on to give us a dose of truth serum. Uh, you don't get it everywhere. So it was wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And thank you, because really, knowing the realities of the economy have never been more important for people to understand than now. And I think, and I don't mean this to, to flatter you, but doing these kinds of exposures and doing these kinds of conversations is an enormously important public service. So I thank Absolutely. you as well. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Took me took a oh, lot of right. self control not to ask about destiny and if you wanted to I know I know say, I know if you wanted to just say like hey you know that asshole you know whatever <laughs> um, well I, I mean that uh that say hi to Elvis for us um, but that debate is worth watching if you guys have the time to do it um, I think uh, Professor Wolf did a great job there oh, Elvis is so cute how's she doing how's she holding up she's doing well she's doing really well she's good she's all better. Okay, good. That's really good to hear. Um, so, Kale, do we have Megan with us yet? Yes. All hey right. Guys. Joining us now is Megan Day. Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for inviting me on to like geek out a little bit about this weird history of May Day that nobody knows about, or a few people do, but I didn't before I was writing about it. Well, I think it's actually really important um, because history tends to repeat itself. And, and I think that there are lessons that can be learned from this. So Megan's on to talk about uh, a piece that she just published in Jacobin. I highly recommend you guys check it out. It's titled The Nazis Stole May Day, But Socialists Took It Back. And Megan, tell us what this uh, history is all about. Okay, so <clears throat> I was just poking around for looking at May Day art uh, in preparation for May Day. And I saw some things that I had never seen before. I saw like very classic socialist May Day imagery sort of covered in swastikas. And I was like, what's going on with that? So I did a little bit of research and um, ultimately ended up discovering that the Nazis actually waged a very intensive campaign to try to claim May Day for themselves and scrub it of all of its socialist and class struggle associations. And eventually to replace it with this kind of very fascist kind of creepy version of Nazi May Day. So that's that's what I wrote about here. And if you guys will indulge me, I'll tell you a little bit about how this happened because I do think it's really fascinating. Is that all right? Okay, so we're gonna, here we go. So the first things first, as we know today, we celebrate May Day with like red flags and raised fists and all of our traditional songs of solidarity, like the Internationale. Um, that's been happening since the late 19th century, since the inception of the holiday, but that tradition has not gone unbroken. Um, in 1933, Hitler came to power and 
shortly after Hitler came to power as the chancellor of Germany, um, there was the Reichstag fire, and then Hitler muscled through the Reichstag fire decree, which was meant to criminalize essentially all forms of left-wing opposition. It was it was passed specifically with socialists in mind, with the socialists who were members of the German SPD, the Social Democratic Party, and to a lesser extent, the Communist Party. Um, so immediately in 1933, they had just opened a brand new concentration camp called Dachau, and they started sending political prisoners there first. Um, and that included primarily socialists, primarily members of the SPD. Kale, if you have that photograph on hand of those SPD prisoners, this one really shocked me when I came across it. So these are socialists who had, many of whom had just been, you know, leaders of their SPD chapters or certainly very active members. And they're being forced to hold a sign in Dachau that says, I am a class conscious person slash an SPD leader. Um, so that started happening immediately in 1933. A few months after the Reichstag fire decree was passed and the imprisonments started, um, interestingly enough, there was a May Day celebration, right? Why is there a May Day celebration in a country where left-wing opposition has just been made illegal? It's because Hitler planned this May Day celebration himself. Uh, so he invited half a million people to come to Tempelhof Field in Berlin for this big May Day celebration where he spoke in front of these um, very elaborate, this a very elaborate set. It was designed by his main architect. It was supposed to be very imposing. There were these large Nazi banners everywhere. And he invited um, not just the general public, but trade union leaders were flown in. Um, you know, the SPD's fortunes had just fallen dramatically. So um, so a lot of the trade unions didn't really know what to do. And some of them opportunistically allied with uh, Hitler's government. And Hitler actually needed, uh, he greeted them himself. And he said, look, you're going to see, this is a direct quote from Hitler, actually. He said, you will see how untrue and unjust is the statement that the revolution is directed against the German workers. He's trying to sort of reassure reassure these trade union leaders that actually he's for the workers. See, he's holding a May Day celebration. And actually a bunch of workers were there. They had been invited, um, invited is, is actually a euphemism. They had been compelled to attend by their employers and their employers marched at the head of columns with them. So this is very different from May Day's past where workers are showing up spontaneously on their own in the spirit of sort of resisting the tyranny of their bosses. Now they're actually marching behind their bosses who are of course answering to Hitler. So it's a new spirit of May Day, a, worse, a far worse spirit of May Day. And so Hitler takes the stage and he actually says, he lays out what his new vision of May Day is gonna be. So as you guys know, you know, May Day around the world has been celebrated as the International Workers' Day, right? And he says, this is bad. May Day has always been an important day in German folk history. It's a spring folk festival and, it's, and, um, and we're gonna return to that vision of May Day. We're still gonna honor workers. It's important to honor workers, but he has a new slogan that he rolls out for May Day and it's called honor the worker and respect the work. This has nothing to do with class conflict and nothing to do with class struggle. It's just kind of like paying lip service to the fact that some people work in society, right? Um, and he says, actually, he says, this is a quote, the day of new life and hopeful joy was transformed, passive voice, he means by evil socialists, was transformed into a day of quarrel and internal strife, a day of hate. 
the symbol of class conflict of never-ending strife and discord is now becoming once again the symbol of the great unity and uprising of the nation. And he even says in this speech that it's necessary to teach each rank and class the significance of the other ranks and classes, i.e. the hierarchy stays, it's actually a natural hierarchy, and we're going to celebrate workers, but we're going to also, you know, um, reify this arrangement um, and actually teach everybody the importance of having things like bosses and workers and so on. Um, Goebbels also takes the stage that day, and he even puts a finer point on it. I'm going to read a quote to you from Goebbels. He says, this is Hitler's minister of propaganda. He says, on a day when in former times we heard the rattle of machine guns and the hate-inspired songs of the class struggle and the internationale, in this first year of Hitler's government, the German people is assembled in unanimous, unswerving loyalty to the state, the race, the word that he uses, Volk, there, and the German nation to which we all belong. So the new vision of May Day is essentially a day of class, German class unity ac across class lines. Because, hey, if you're German, you're part of the Volk, you belong to the Third Reich, let's all come together. Um, workers are good, too. Thumbs up to the workers. Uh, but this is what we're doing from now on. So the trade union leaders, I'm sure, are just sitting there feeling incredibly nervous, right? Um, um, socialists are being shipped off to Dachau, and they they were they were given an assurance that they were going to be taken care of. But the content of these speeches is very alarming. Um, they probably were not alarmed enough because the next day, on May second, nineteen thirty three. Hitler's brown shirts march into the trade union offices all across the country. They occupy them. They arrest the trade union leaders. They confiscate the union funds. They ban unions in Germany, and they replace unions with something called the German Labor Front. And I want to show you this, Kale, if you have that G German Labor Front flag. This is kind of mind-blowing. Do you see the appropriation of traditional working class workers' movement imagery here? The industrial... Um, gear, the wheel, it's encircling a swastika. So this is kind of the way that they're going to proceed with May Day. They're basically just going to appropriate socialist imagery and slap swastikas all over it, right? Um, this is not totally surprising when it comes to the Nazis. Of course, this is how the Nazis got their name to begin with. They're called the, what is, what is it, National Socialist German Workers Association is the full party, is the full name of, of the Nazi party. Um, so that was their, that they've been doing that for a long time. That's how they appeal to German workers, um, who at that point were actually, they had, because of the SPD, the, the Social Democratic Party, and because of the very powerful unions, were a big and important sector of, you know, German politics. They have to be appealed to. So Hitler found out a way to appeal to them. So they were doing this with May Day at first, and there, were, there was all of this May Day art that I came across. I don't know, Kale, if you want to show some of it, that's like um, um, workers holding, like, tools in one hand and a red flag in the other, which is very classic sort of May Day stuff, right? And here's one, yeah, of worker, a worker holding his tools and standing before factory silos. This to me looks like anything that you would see from the Soviet Union. Um, and it's just classic socialist imagery, but there are swastika flags everywhere. You can see in the top corner of this one, it does say the 1st of May. So this really is a May Day postcard that was issued by the Third Reich. Um, so that's what they did at first is they're sort of appropriating this socialist imagery. And then what they decide to do is, is sort of phase it out, right? They're, they're, first they appropriate and then they say, oh yeah, we got to show this one. This one's really insane. Thank you for showing that, Kale. That right there, um, first of all, very scary looking um, human head 
I don't know why that's there, just to frighten people perhaps. But there's a hammer and a sickle on this commemorative coin that was issued in 1934, along with a swastika and a classic Nazi eagle. I, it, uh, it's a really odd object. It's very ideologically confused. Um, but that's why that object exists, right? If you came across that in the wild, you would be very confused, but it makes sense in this context. So they start to transition away from worker anything. I mean, they're they're trying to do what they call integrating the German workers back into the, quote, national community. And so that means that they're going to stress the very folky side of Mayday. Um, and that means lots of like maypoles and wreaths and garlands and arboreal imagery. But yeah, look at this. They're going to be topped with swastikas. This image scares the living shit out of me. I apologize to people who are listening to this on a podcast. Um, I really recommend that you go look at the article because some of these images are um, pretty jaw dropping. This is a maypole top. It's covered in sort of strange symbols, including a hammer and sickle. I don't know if you can see that underneath the swastika. And then there's a swastika on top, but it's also sort of folky looking. And it's, it's sort of like wreaths on top of a pole. It's supposed to be a sort of neo-pagan May Day thing. And speaking of the neo-pagan aspect, I think this is important. I mean, you know, first, I want to say that so it's not like socialists had never noticed that May Day falls on, you know, the traditional spring uh, holiday in Europe. And actually, um, you know, from the even from before, um, you know, what we consider socialism proper, back, going back to the French Revolution, um, the, you know, sort of wreaths and garlands and, and maypoles were used as symbols of left-wing mass politics and resistance to tyranny. And certainly in the UK, especially, a lot of the May Day art that you saw from the UK in the late 19th and going into the 20th centuries focuses on maypoles and beautiful flowers and the spring imagery and things like that. So it's not like that's autumn automatically kind of creepy and fascist or anything, but the way that the Nazis use it, it definitely was. So if you know anything about the Nazis use of like runes, for example, um, that they, that was always to sort of signal to a pre-Christian pagan identity that basically the sort of the idea that Germans were rooted in this land since antiquity. Um, it's, and in a similar sense, the maples and the wreaths and the garlands that were used during Nazi May Day were meant to evoke this kind of were meant to evoke ethnically pure Germans, personal, you know, sort of distinct connection to German history and German land. It was kind of a romantic ethno-nationalism. It was meant to bind together like mystical notions of race and nature, or in other words, blood and soil, right? Um, so the word they used for this is Volk, which means folk, but it comes to mean race, right? The folk are really the German race. So it's it's much creepier than like Walter Crane's beautiful version of Socialist May Day in the UK. Um, so what did workers think about all this? Mm, they weren't that interested in it. And we know this because they're actually internal reports from the Nazi party where they're concerned that the workers aren't really biting. Um, the workers show up to the celebrations, right? They're supposed to be workers days. They get a holiday off and they show up because they're basically because there's free food and drink and who wouldn't, you know, it's entertainment, it's something to do and it's free. There's big banquets. But in terms of who was like really excited to Heil Hitler and listen rapturously to these speeches that were being broadcast from Berlin every year on Nazi May Day and participate in all these folk celebrations like the crowning of the May Queen, who was always dressed in like a dirndl and had her like classic Heidi, like Germanic blonde braids or whatever. It's not really the working class of Germany. Um, they're just, they're kind of apolitical. They're kind of like, whatever, not really that excited about it, at least from what we can tell from Nazi reports um, where they're concerned about this problem. Um, 
so they were they were a hit. The May Day celebrations were a hit, but mostly with the petty bourgeois, um, and to use a non-Marxist terminal terminology, with the sort of lower lower middle classes, the lower and lower and middle middle classes, and the petty bourgeois were basically the main constituency for these like folk holidays. Um, the Nazis were leaned on employers. They were like, you gotta get the workers to participate in these. So so a lot of workers were showing up by compulsion, um, and it lasted for maybe five five years this way. And and eventually the participation in the these creepy Nazi May Day uh, rallies, um, which were also, there was a lot of like martial displays, you know, military parades, lots of swastika bunting everywhere. Um, the So these these celebrations, the participation did start to dwindle as, as Germany neared war. I mean, it was clear for years that they were gearing up for a war, right? And and eventually the Nazi Nazis' internal reports start to say like, well, uh, people are finding the situation a little bit too grave for festivities anyway. But they still are working on integrating those German workers into the national community. And so they want to keep doing something for Workers' Day. And so the Nazis essentially say to the workers, like, or to the to the employers, like, look, you need to host, you need to give people a day off of work and like just provide them beer in the factory, right? It's like an employer's gift to the workers or whatever. So they start doing that. And apparently it's a very bleak situation. Like people are just kind of, sitting around and drinking beer inside of their factories while their employers are like watching over them being like, are you enjoying this? Are you enjoying your Nazi May Day? So um, very unpleasant all around. And the war starts and then eventually even those kind of get phased out. I think it's 1942 that because of the stress of war production, they actually cancel the May Day holiday. So the workers have to work on the holiday that was declared for them. So the whole thing is essentially a failed um, experiment. Um, but it was a very creepy and, and interesting uh, moment in May Day history, nonetheless. Um, so where were socialists during all of this? I mean, mostly they were hiding or in concentration camps or dead. Um, and speaking of, you know, socialists being killed, you know, at, at a certain point, I, I in my research, I was I was finding something very interesting, which is that you know, socialists had originally in like 1933 and 1934, especially in Berlin, they had anonymously created pamphlets and posters to try to remind workers of the original Marxist origins of May Day and the fact that it's actually an international celebration of unity in class struggle. But, um, you know, it's getting traced back to them and they're getting rounded up and and also this, their underground networks are, are not staying underground for long. You know, the, the Nazi police are all over them. So they start holding informal gatherings with each other on May Day to sort of keep the, the flame alive, but they have to disguise them as coffee clutches or just like gatherings of friends. And they're afraid to sing the International, actually, because they're afraid they'll be overheard and then they'll and then they'll be either killed or sent to concentration camps. So they just sing apolitical songs. And for years, that's, that's essentially how it went on. Um, and it turns out that the only place that socialists were able to find to freely assemble in in the later years of the Third Reich was actually funerals for comrades who had been killed by the Nazis. So it was expected, of course, that a person's friends would show up at their funeral. So socialists would be able to gather together at the funerals of fallen comrades. And sometimes their eulogies would take the form of socialist speeches. And essentially, these are the only socialist speeches being given in Germany during the Third Reich, are eulogies for socialists who've been killed by the Nazis. Um, but, you know, May Day may have been completely bastardized in Germany, but it's an international holiday. So it's being celebrated as an international workers day in lots of other countries. And that includes also on the periphery of Germany's expanded territory, right? And 
so for an example of this is in the Warsaw Ghetto. In 1944, actually, um, they, they did celebrate May Day in the Warsaw Ghetto and they sang the Internationale and then they waged a campaign of bloody reprisal against Nazis. And to celebrate May Day, they murdered as many Nazi SS officers and soldiers as they possibly could. So the spirit of May Day was alive and well in other places, including in the far reaches or near-ish reaches of, of the Reich's empire. Um, 1945, April 30th, uh, Hitler kills himself. That means the next morning, which is May Day, 1945, the world wakes up, Hitler is dead, the Third Reich has fallen, and Nazi May Day, along with the Nazis themselves, is officially over. So this is an interesting history in part just because there are lots of reasons to celebrate on May Day, but I think that an additional one is, is the kind of poignancy of the fact that there was a major attempt to completely co-opt and erase the meaning of this holiday and our version won out. The fascist version did not win. The, the socialist version of May Day is the version that, that is celebrated today. Um, and that's just extra cause for celebration on our part. So that's the reason why I decided that it would be worth a story worth telling. Thank you for letting me just like go on and do a Wikipedia entry. I appreciate that. No, that's great. I mean, this was this was fascinating. I did not know the specific history. I mean, I, I it certainly fits um, with the general trend of Nazi Germany and that, you know, right wingers tend to like to think it's like a some sort of own to socialists be like, you know, well, you know, the Nazis, they called themselves socialists, um, right. you know, and like Benito Mussolini, he he did it. He did Medicare for all. Um, and uh, and but, but, but that's really what it is, is that they the, in, a, in a in a society as class conscious as uh, as Germany was in, in those decades. Um, in order to win over any, not the majority of the working classes, but some of the working classes, they needed to adopt that kind of socialist rhetoric um, and that kind of socialist symbolism because um, it was, I don't know, it, it was a pure um, stylistic nod towards socialism, which was the dominant, uh, the dominant political ideology of the working classes at the time. Um so it certainly it certainly makes makes a lot of sense. It's kind of fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think yeah, it's important that you that we we push back on that because that's such a common refrain. It's like, well, the Nazis were socialists. It literally says so in their name. Um, it's important yeah. that we understand the history that was intentionally done to win over uh, the wor the working classes. And um, there were actually some Nazis who mistakenly uh, they had come from the socialist movement and they they like actually Mussolini. Yeah, Mussolini, yeah, for sure. Um, Oswald Mosley in, in the UK had been a Labour Party um, member, but in the in Germany as well, um, there were some Nazis who, at the very beginning, they had come sort of from the milieu of the SPD, um, and they actually believed there were a very, very, very small minority of socialists in Germany, but they believed that the Third Reich might be a transitional phase toward revolution. And, and Hitler would say things to them like, uh, yeah, sure. If that gets you on board, then yes, definitely. We are definitely doing that, right? And, you know, it was in no time. I mean, in the first, uh, 1934, so it's one year after the Reich begins, um, they were murdered. I mean, that's what the Night of the Long Knives is. It's the purge of that wing of the Nazi party. They were just murdered and eliminated because Hitler was tired of hearing all the, you know, hearing all this stuff about how we're going to do socialism. That was just, that was just a gambit to get a few people on board. I mean, I'm oversimplifying gravely, but not, but that's definitely true that it was just a crass appropriation of socialism to get enough people on board to consolidate power. 
All right. Everyone go check out Megan's piece. Uh, I'll read you the title again. The Nazis stole May Day, but socialists took it back. And Megan, thank you so much for um, coming on and and telling us a little bit about your piece and this incredible history. Yeah, it was a blast. Thanks, guys. And happy May Day. You too. All right. Let's bring on our homie, Kale, and uh, answer some of your Super Chat questions. Maybe read some of your Super Chat comments. What's going on, Kale? Feeling good. Great show. Thanks, Megan. Uh, thanks, Richard Wolf, as always. Um, two of our, our brightest and smartest voices on the left. Um, we do have some super chats uh, that have already come in, um, and I'm going to try to get to some of them. Some of them were just really nice, just like you guys did a great show today. And so I appreciate that. Thank you. Some of them were talking about Nando's dog. Um, Nando has a beautiful dog. Um, Paige Shameless just ploy to get super chats. <laughs> use, use the dog. Yeah. Um, and as always, we're doing the, um, the May Day sale. So if you see the link that's passing by my fingers right here, you should write that into your URL and you should uh, become a Jacobin print subscriber because today it's only $1 to, well, $1 for uh, getting the quarterly issue online. And it's $10 to get four issues over the course of a year. And normally uh, it's four times that price, which honestly is still worth it. I mean, how much do books cost these days? Like you're getting four of these things for like, maybe like the cost of two books, maybe. I don't know. There's, there's some, some math going on here, but um, $10 for four of these. It's. And- you're great. At, you're a great salesman, Kale. You're really, you really got the <laughs> spiel down, dude. To get some QVC music playing in the background. Yeah. Uh, can I can I just make a comment about the latest um, the latest issue? Um, it's so beautiful that I'm I'm careful when I'm reading it. Like I don't want to, you know. Usually I'll like fold the the cover part as, as I'm reading. I like to do that, and I'm just like, no, it's just I'm going to wear gloves while I'm reading, and <laughs> I don't want to ruin it. It's just so. It's a beautiful magazine. And it's not just, you know, this issue. Every issue is incredible. You could tell that there's a lot of thought put into it. Um, the artwork, the articles, the opinion pieces, just fantastic. There's a, there's a little ad for current affairs. <laughs> we'll give them some love. There's uh, some good stuff in here. Um, yeah, and uh, actually, we're going to have um, the author of the uh, lead article from this, Doug Henwood, on next Saturday to yes, talk about are. the American ruling class. Who are they? Why don't we know more about them? We should. Let's try to figure out who they are because it's kind of important to know who we're up against. So uh, we're going we're gonna to go through some of that next week. Um, and um, again, thank you so much for all of these wonderful super chats from all of our lovely audience. Um, uh um, this one just came in um, asking if we'll have Richard Wolf and Noam Chomsky on a panel. I would love that, but like that's also a like we're gonna try. I mean, sure, why not? Um, but like, so that would be the entire two men show, enter. Though. Yeah, two men <laughs> yeah. enter, one man leaves. Oh, please don't say that. <laughs> oh God. Um, thank you for your super chat. Uh, and um, okay, so um. Here's another one. I'm just throwing some that are coming in right now. Jason asking if we've heard about the process situation in Colombia against uh, the president of Dubuque uh, or Duque. Sorry. Um, The other other thing. Um, I haven't. I'm sorry. But uh, yeah, you guys have. Well, here it is on the screen. (laughs) 
I have heard about it. Maybe we'll do a decode in the future on it. Um, yeah, just the um, situation in Colombia. I mean, it's just the 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 successive the successive successive right wing governments of Colombia like have it seems like finally are meeting their end. Maybe perhaps unclear, but we'll see. Yeah, but yeah. It's a it's a really strange tumultuous time right now in Latin America, just across the board. Just the amount of kind of transition that's that's going on, and obviously it's yeah. strange and tumultuous around the world. But um, there's like more real political action that's like transforming uh, in real time there, which is not the case everywhere around the world. We're like stuck in a malaise. But um, anyways, I want to throw. This one on screen um, from USA Tennis, who's asking us um, if you've heard about the NYU graduate student strike, uh, GSOC strike. I have. I was on the picket line. So support oh, unions. Nice. Um, I've heard of it. Yeah, everyone should be in a union. Um, and uh, that's something we've, we've touched on um, graduate student unions a little bit on the Jacobin show with Paul. We do a segment called Labor Paul because uh, one of our other hosts, one of our other shows on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. that you should check out. Uh, Paul is a labor organizer. He's a he's a high school teacher, but he's also an active union member um, and has been thinking and writing about labor politics for many years. Uh, and and so we do a segment where we take people's questions about either labor history, the labor movement, present organizing, um, organizing questions and challenges. Uh, and Paul tries to do his best to answer some of those every week, um, every week that he's on. Um, and we have addressed uh, graduate student unions at one point several weeks ago. And so that's online somewhere. And um, that might be of interest. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, well, let me go to some of the other super chats. Um, again, there was a lot of really nice ones of just like, great show. I love I love Richard Wolf, which we do too. Um, and um, one from Megan saying, thank you for letting us absorb your knowledge. We appreciate that. Um, this one's kind of interesting, um, and I want to see what you guys think about this. Uh, Matt had asked us earlier, did the Republican Party make a massive mistake by being against immigration when many who live south of the U.S. are religious? No. I mean, I think that the um, I think that immigrant politics have been probably the things sustaining the right across not just the United States, but all over Europe, um, that it's the it's the single issue that most um, appeals to, uh, you know, regular people, quote unquote, from the right. Um, so I think that that was the that was the kind of conventional wisdom after Romney got crushed by Obama in 2012. There was this something called the forgot some sort of report like the autopsy report or something that the Republican party did. And the main um, recommendation was to change to on immigration, which Romney had changed from the Bush administration, which was very pro uh, immigration reform. Um, and George Bush actually won close to half of the Latino population at the time in the United States in his 2004 reelection bid. People don't remember that. And then by, uh, Romney famously kind of was hard on immigration, did the, the, you know, the whole self-deportation thing. And then um, it was seen as a huge blunder by uh, Mitt Romney. Um, and, and, uh, and that was the, the analysis of the Republican autopsy report. But then, of course, that went out the window um, with Trump, who famously started his campaign by saying the Mexicans were rapists, all that stuff. So, and he won. And that's also 
been the case all across Europe with these far right parties, which are primarily organized around anti-immigration as their animating issue. Um, and it has been a huge source of strength for them. Um, so, no, I think if you're a cold, cynical Republican operative, going hard on immigration probably is good politics. Right. I would just add um, the other side of the, the flip side of what Nando's saying is that uh, so much of immigration policy and trade policy more broadly, um, because, of course, it's on the one hand, the movement of people and on the other hand, the movement of capital. Uh, so much of like how these parties are orienting to these issues comes down to their actual coalitions of capitals, blocks of capitals, of elites, different corporations, which corporations are behind what parties. And so some corporations do want uh, tight labor markets. Well, and so, and most of them want loose labor markets. Um, the vast majority want loose labor markets because the point is that if um, uh, you have workers in your factory right now and uh, they uh, are saying, you know, these are not great wages. I would like a, a wage increase. Um, the boss can say, well, yeah, but there's like 10 other people outside that would work for even less than what you're working for. So why do I even keep you around? Maybe I'll get rid of you and I'll bring someone else in. And so, so much of what kind of animates uh, workers' legitimate fears over you know, losing their job gets wrapped up in horrific xenophobic uh, language and rhetoric. And, um, and again, it's largely just serving capitalists who, uh, you know, some capitalists want to import uh, people into the country, um, but they want seasonal laborers, laborers and, um, and some don't. Like and Trump. So, like Trump. I mean, yeah. he increased the cap for um, uh, foreign visas that, you know, for people who would work on his properties, essentially. Uh, so they they absolutely love that. Um, but it's funny because they'll they'll frame their political campaigns around like with this anti-immigrant rhetoric. They love the cheap labor. They love to exploit that. Um, but they will use the xenophobic um, and bigoted language in order to appeal to their base. Totally. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, we have to do our best to, to try to kind of break through these narratives and um, and be clear minded about, you know, from the capitalist point of view, we're just an input. <laughs> like we we're just a cost for them. And so they're concerned with making profit, maximizing profit. And so uh, the human costs, like the human toil and, and um, degradation that people face is not something they really care about. And part of it's because they can't really care about it because they're stuck thinking about, am I going to beat out my competitor? Is my competitor going to beat out me? And so uh, like uh, Professor Wolf was saying earlier, we can't let the small number of people who have very narrow interests that are focused on maximizing their profit at the expense of everyone else and the planet uh, hold all of the most important resources in society that determine our lives that, uh, you know, that we end up having to be employed by these people and they make our lives miserable. Um, so, you know, we've been on Jacobin and elsewhere trying to propose, you know, how do you actually go about transforming society? And so a lot of it's going to be, um, you know, workers having greater democratic control over their lives in the workplace, in, in society broadly, um, and having certain aspects of life that are essential uh, be guaranteed as basic rights um, and provided by a public and democratic state that, um, you know, so part of it is democratizing the workplace, part of it's democratizing uh, the government. And, you know, that's why I'm using, I'm using state kind of interchangeably with that. But 
democratizing the government so that it responds to our needs more effectively. And, and again, when workers have, in fact, been powerful, you have, you have seen more democratic outcomes. You've had governments that were more responsive to working people um, because they had to listen to workers because they had power. And so that's ultimately where all this comes down to or what all this comes down to. But um, OK, um, so. Uh, there's one last one, I guess. I'll just do this one and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, cause LJ had asked us as content creators, thoughts on how to, uh, cultivate common sense into coherent narratives, um, where not Nazi propaganda fails. What are our contemporary methods? So I guess it's just kind of, how do we wage like a counter ideological fight against the right, uh, is, is how I'm understanding this. Well, I think it's important. Like the one thing that I've noticed, like as of late is people kind of falling for the, the rhetoric or the rhetorical arguments made by like the Tucker Carlson's of the world who has absolutely no interest in empowering workers, has no interest in, um, you know, he doesn't want to redistribute wealth. He certainly doesn't want to redistribute power. Right. And so like being able to like suss that out and debunk that like his appeals to workers, I think is important. I'm, I'm giving him as an example because that's the, that's the one person who pops into my head uh, immediately. Like Marco Rubio is another example where Marco Rubio, uh, you know, says that maybe, maybe these Amazon warehouse workers should unionize, you know, and it, it isn't because he actually likes unions or believes in labor power. Um, it, it's because he wants to retaliate against what he views uh, of, of places like Amazon, like, or, or Silicon Valley companies that they're too woke and they're too involved in like the social justice stuff. And so he wants to retaliate in that regard. It's just important to kind of like debunk um, the right wing appeals to workers. Um, and of course, we saw a lot of that with Trump as well. He didn't mean any of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to like I don't want to like sound hysterical and say like Tucker Carlson is a Nazi. But like he does do a similar thing to like what the Nazis did was really like, he clearly like reads left media uh, to sort of pick and choose um, which critiques of liberalism um, that come from the left can serve kind of his broader right wing, uh, right wing goals. Um, and so he, a lot of his critiques of liberals are like kind of sort of well taken. They're like, but they're, they're, they're kind of a, a cynical employment of left wing critiques of liberals. Um, Trump did this a lot on the campaign trail in 2016. I remember uh, well, when he said it used to be we could drink, uh, you've made cards in Flint and you couldn't drink the water in Mexico. Now, they make cars in Mexico and you can't drink the water in Flint. Um, and, you know, that's obviously a very powerful rhetorical um, device. But, you know, I think that in general, um, the, uh, you know, Ben Burgess's uh, book, uh, you know, give them an argument and that and that impetus, I think, is a noble one. And it's something that on the left and in liberal in the liberal world has atrophied in a way that there is. There is this feeling that there is this pose that everything is kind of settled and that if you just don't know the thing already, then you're then you're not just an idiot, but probably worse racist or or have some sort of nefarious goal uh, in mind when a lot of people really do genuinely don't really know how to react to something as it happens real time. Um, and 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 we have to be ready to provide. Um, those kind of arguments and confront them head on rather than just like be like, look at how ridiculous this is or look at how racist this guy is or whatever. Like those things don't work. 
they they just don't you know um people want like you know there there are limits to sort of logical arguments and things like that but but if you don't have them then you're definitely going to lose like they need to be they need to be the base of any sort of broader messaging goal you need to have the arguments right you need to you need to know them and you need to be able to um flex that muscle when it when you need it um and if you don't work it out you know to continue this very long analogy um it will essentially atrophy yeah and and i think you we should try to appeal to to people's better angels that i think i think we envision a world that uh has an ethos of community of compassion of people caring about one another and taking care of one another um and uh ultimately i think people can in fact do that and that a lot of the horrible outcomes that we see in the world a lot of it is just people stuck in horrible situations with bad decisions to make um and you know choosing one of several bad decisions and and so then you get bad outcomes so i think i think ultimately um most people are good and want better outcomes for others they want to take care of other people they they were social creatures and so um you know we should be appealing to people on those things where we find common interests first and foremost the you know um nine bevan the the guy in the uk who created the national health service said that and i think this is completely true it's not just that he said it but he's also someone who accomplished a great deal of things so it's worth listening to him but so that the the religion of socialism is priorities and so i think uh this is what we when we are organizing when we're talking to people who don't agree with us um we have to choose our priorities and say how can i appeal to this person and bring them closer to me uh so that we actually end up with closer more egalitarian more universalistic more um you know politics that are that are based on and dealing with people's real actual issues in a way that empowers them further uh to you know that empowers them to go further and to and to fight for more and so um you know this is something again we've been trying to figure out but again for what's worth i think a lot of that has to do with like healthcare and and job security and wages and um and trying to say you know let's not deal with this um culture war issue right now like let's let's talk about the fact that we have a health crisis right now and and so what how are we going to get out of the situation in a way that uh betters all of us and so um i think doing things like that i think turning the question to to the issues that really matter in a way that um brings people together around their common interests uh and and then trying to forge greater common interests and then to the extent that some people obviously have you know bad ideas they have aggressive ideas they have um bigoted ideas uh you know i think those are things that you can overcome through this process of of finding the commonality on the things that you do agree with um and and specifically like issues that are class issues that are issues of it's us as working people against the that other group of people that make our lives miserable because they force us into these situations where they dominate us they exploit us they oppress us and so that's um and they divide us as well i mean that's totally. a huge part of it yeah completely so yeah. solidarity happy may day um hit like hit subscribe share this video with your friends cuz we talked about a bunch of stuff that maybe they would be interested in 
Um, I happen to think that this was a good show, and I, I hope you do too. Um, and uh, and by the by the issue, it's a good one. And you get three more. I don't even know what they are. They're going to be great though, because Boscar is a, he's he's great. Boscar and Connor, good boys. They make good things. You should buy their things. And um, I don't know. Have a good weekend. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Um, thank you for liking and sharing this stream. And if you haven't subscribed to this channel, you definitely should. Um, please share the video. Uh, it's a great way to support us in addition to subscribing to the magazine. Um, thank you so much. Happy May Day, everyone. And have a great weekend.